Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Michael, welcome back to the Australian Investors Podcast. Owen, it's a absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, last time we recorded, we were in the, as you said, fishbowl, the big glass boardroom that we have here. And now we're in the studio. So hopefully it's a bit more quiet for people and we can just relax and talk about investing and all these wonderful things. Yep. I think the air in the investment space and uh, and whatnot has, has cleared up a little bit. There are a few more people on the street today than last time around, that's for sure. Yes. But it's good to be here. Yeah, absolutely it is. So I have a few icebreaker questions which I've been running lately because they elicit really interesting, typically short form responses. And I love to dive into these because it just kind of sets the scene since I came on the show. This podcast has obviously grown significantly and also what you're doing has been very impressive. So there's a lot for us to fill in. So hopefully this icebreaker is kind of just set the scene for a bit about you and uh, and what you do. So what's one thing you would teach your children that few other parents would? Gosh, right. It's interesting. Look, I think the concept of being comfortable, being uncomfortable, and I think we spoke about this a little bit last time around, is really important. I think that inherently people tend to understand that concept and you see it especially around sports, elite sports. You know, people understand that you've got to work really hard. You've got to train really hard if you want to get the outcomes. Um, For some reason in modern culture, that seems to have slipped away a little bit in terms of broader education and culture for children. I think as well, when children are young, fail early and fail often. You're not going to be able to work out what your fullest potential is until you find where your fail points are. And it's certainly a lot cheaper to fail when you're younger than it is to fail when you're older. And eventually we all will fail. We'll all make mistakes. So I'd much rather my kids do it at 8, 10, 12 than at 20, 30 or 40. Yeah, I like that. It's like investing. You know, start soon, start small and make mistakes because they're they're forgiving. Look, I I think the challenge for a lot of parents today, so I know there's a lot of parenting uh, (laughs) parenting podcasts, but I I think one of the challenges for parents today and myself as well is that we're so keen that in such a dangerous world, we want to protect our children. And so sometimes allowing them to fail can be quite difficult. But for our children's growth, it's just it's, it's an essential part of growing up and becoming the fullest person that you can, you can become. So I'm still certainly working on allowing my children the space they need to, to grow. And it's certainly still difficult, but I'm aware of it. And I suppose that's at least the start. Yeah. You have to listen back to this in a, in a little while just to be 
making sure you're following your own advice. But just just don't send the podcast to my wife because she'll point it out to me if, uh, if, if I'm in need of a reminder. <laughs> okay, no, question number two is, who is the investor that you have learned the most from? I actually think that the pool of information that you probably want to have at your fingertips with as it relates to investing comes from a broad range of, of topics and ideas. And I suspect that I've probably learned as much along my investment journey from reading about philosophy and even religion, which both really give you a good framework for being able to identify your own, your own fallibilities and identifying when you're behaving emotionally rather than rationally. And so I think there's plenty to be learned from, from a broad spectrum of, of topics. But if you wanted to pin me down on, on a couple of investors specifically that you probably can see their, their impact on our portfolio, probably Charlie Munger in terms of, obviously he's a value investor, but also his, his love for concentrated portfolios. We think that the concept of a concentrated portfolio makes a lot of sense if you've got the time and prepared to put in the effort to make sure that those stocks that do make it in are the right kinds of stocks. Um, and I think the other party, the other person that, that, that you can probably see through our process is probably Peter Lynch, who invented the concept or at least popularized the concept of scuttlebutt, which means basically go out there and find out for yourself, which plays quite a significant part in our process and research that we do on, on many of the companies that we invest in. So yeah, the, the, two, the two popular investors that you'll probably see most prevalently through our, through our systems is probably Charlie Munger and, and P. Lynch, I would say. I love that. And we'll probably get more to the scuttlebutt bit in a little while. Okay. So this is one that's very interesting for me because I know you do a lot of work that is not in the annual report. Uh, and so what has been the most unlikely source of an investment idea since you, maybe you could take this since you started the fund, since you started the business or even previously, the most unlikely source? There have been some interesting ones. I think probably the most unusual source of an investment idea, and again, to your scuttlebutt point, keep your eyes open when you're walking down the street because ideas can come from anywhere, is probably from a doctor's appointment. Huh, okay. Yeah. So one of Vass's family members was having some challenges with osteoarthritis and went to get checked out by the doctor and the advice was, you've got to go get surgery. So she went to go get surgery and the recovery was just an absolute challenge. It was an absolute challenge. It was a big, big struggle. So when the other knee went and they went back to the doctor, Vass went along because he's not afraid to talk his mind and he, his family was keen to have someone who would have their back. And he said, look, is there anything else we can do because this is not going to work again? And the doctor said, look, you know, I understand that your family has some background in medicine, so I was hesitant to suggest this before, but there is this company that provides a drug that looks like it's having some, you know, a good impact on osteoarthritis. So Vass came back to the office and said, Michael, we've got to look into this thing. Apparently it's listed. So we had a look, we called up management, we spoke to brokers, we we got in touch with the doctors who were, who were prescribing it at, during the test phases. And what we discovered was that there was this company called Paradigm that was providing a drug through the real world and also doing about to engage in stage two or about to provide results from stage two clinical trials. And we could see the results from the real world patients now in advance of the stage two clinical trials coming out because, again, there was access to that drug if you had a special certificate from your doctor. So we did our research um, and we decided to essentially cornerstone a capital raising they did I think it was around about 68 cents. Goodness gracious me, when was this? 2018-ish. Feels like about the time that it was. It did really, really well from a share price perspective. I think we exited at around $3, $3.50. Um, they're not yet on market. COVID sort of put a bit of a, a pause on their plan to get through stage three clinical trials. Um, and the share price as such hasn't really done much. Gone a little bit backwards since we sold it. But in terms of the drug, it's very, very interesting. And in terms of weird and wonderful ideas to get an, uh, an investment idea from, I think 
probably a doctor's office with uh, <laughs> with a family member is is one of the more unique places. Yeah, absolutely, it is. I was just thinking uh, for those listeners, I'm going to link it in the show notes. The previous interview that we've done, uh, I was thinking as you were going through this because this is very familiar with, to me oh, because oh, we spoke about paradigm last time. No, no, no I, I, I we may have. I, I, I can't remember exactly if we did mention. I know we've spoken around that before. Maybe it was off air or something. But for people who are completely new to you. Let's just ask this question. Can you tell us the Collins Street Value Fund, the business that you co-founded or founded, can you tell us about it? What would people want to know? Because it's very unique. And this is like something, it, there are many things about it that are very unique, but I want to cover off that base. Okay. That's actually a tough question for me because look, essentially, Vass and I, when we launched the business, we, we, we were trying to create something that we as investors would be interested in. So, you know, we view the fund as a, a fund for investors by investors, essentially. So when we sat down over our serviette before we launched the fund, trying to plan out what our future might look like, we said to ourselves, okay, philosophically, we're on board. It's going to be value investing because that makes a ton of sense to both of us. We're going to be a concentrated portfolio because we understand the value in owning fewer stocks so long as they're your best and favorite ideas. I think probably the most unique thing about our flagship fund, the value fund, is probably our fee structure. We sat there trying to work out what would be fair and what wouldn't be fair. And I think the starting point in the industry tends to be, well, do you want to charge 1% or do you want to charge 2%? What portion of performance do you want to take? And to us, that didn't really resonate as investors. I don't think there are a lot of industries out there where you can fundamentally fail in your mandate and still expect to be paid completely. And so what we decided to do was say, you know what, we're looking for absolute returns. We're not really that fussed about how the markets how the markets do. And I think that's been reflected in our journey thus far. We've, we've certainly created uh, and generated different returns over the period. Positive returns. Yeah. Very, very pleased with how we've, how we've done that. But, you know, markets go up, markets go down. Our, our portfolio tends to do its own sort of thing. And so we decided to land on a zero fixed management fee structure where the only fee we get is a performance fee and only when we're generating and creating real new value for our investors. That's probably the most unique thing. I like it. You like it? Yeah. Yeah. I, again, it's, it was about sitting down and trying to work out what would we like to see in a fund if we were investing in a fund. So you want to see that your managers are being incentivized to achieve good outcomes for you. And you want to see that align their interests with you. So most of the team have invested in the fund and we only get paid when we generate a positive return for our investors. So to the extent that that aligns our interests, and I think it does, hopefully we get better outcomes over the long term for our for, for the people who have supported us. Yeah, that's great. I like, Thank you for sharing that because it does set a bit of a foundation for the types of com- the rest of the conversation. So thank you for Uh-oh. that. How I got myself in trouble. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. We'll see what the uh, the marketing team says. But uh, so, so since we last spoke, the fund, the Collins Street Value Fund has performed very well in that time, like both absolute terms and relative terms to your cohort, to your peers. And one of the things that stood out to me last time when we spoke, and it was just like that doctor example you gave, is like the under, unconventional methods that you use to find companies. Because I think the way you think about business, maybe, and I think it's your background is in business, is use unconventional methods then to start a business. So how has that translated through time and what have you come across recently? It's interesting feedback and I'll, I'll take it as said that what you said is true, but I only know my own personal experiences. So to me, nothing that we do is especially shocking. You know, essentially we're value investors. We're just looking to try and find, you know, a dollar worth of earnings or assets and see if we can try and buy it at 50 cents. So that does mean that we'll put in some effort to try and uncover why there might be mispricing in, in the markets. In terms of the most unconventional thing that we've done, 
as part of our research process. Actually, I think it was around 2020. We still had a significant investment in uranium. And I think we spoke about uranium investing last time. And there were rumors out of China that there was some sort of nuclear accident. And, and I recall on the day that that news started to filter through, not through mainstream media per se quite at that point, but certainly secondary media sources, the uranium companies in Australia fell by 20% on that day. So I looked at Vass and Vass looked at me and we're like, well, what, what the heck's going on? We've got to work out, you know, is this an opportunity? Is the market wrong? And should we be comfortable holding what we've got or maybe buy more? Or is the market right? And if the market's right, it doesn't matter what the future looks like for nuclear energy. If there's, a, if there's an accident somewhere, it's going to be another decade in the doldrums. And so leveraging our networks, we found somebody in China who could go to this town where the alleged leak had happened. We asked him to take a Geiger counter and a camera and each morning for two weeks or maybe it was three weeks, send us a video of the Geiger counter with the morning newspaper. So the first day he got there, or before he went there, we said, look, if it's dangerous, get out. We'll pay you. Don't worry about it. You know, we don't want you to put your life at risk. But the first day he got there and the readings were actually a little bit high, um, not dangerously high, but they were a little bit high. There was no drama on the streets. He took a, a video of the streets outside. You know, if, if you're seeing, you know, ambulances and, and fire trucks and, you know, don't worry about what the Geiger counter says, just you know, get out and we'll get out. But over a couple of weeks, the readings came back, you know, pretty positively and whatever the issue was seemed to be, a, to be resolved. And so instead of panic selling, we got to hold on and we made some really good money out of that, um, out of that position. So we've certainly done some strange things over the journey, but sending somebody into a potential nuclear waste zone is probably the strangest thing that we've done. I love that. And I love how you got them to take the morning newspaper so you knew which day it was, I, I presume. Is that yeah, so originally the idea was going to be to um, take a photo of it. And while I like to generally be a trusting kind of guy, I've had enough experience with Microsoft Paint um, <laughs> to know that you can edit these things. And certainly anybody with any real IT skills could quite easily go take one photo and then change it every day. So I figured a video probably they can edit as well, but it would be more difficult. Well, we didn't know this particular guy, but we knew the per- people who knew these, this guy and they trusted him. And so we were happy to go ahead, go, go ahead and go along with the, uh, with the process. That's fascinating. I love that. I really do like that. So... Normally when I've been conducting these interviews in 2023, obviously I do a fair bit of background and I look into recent letters and commentary and those types of things. And normally when I go to the performance tab of a lot of managers coming into 2022 and then at the at the back end, it's been some really tough times, even on you know five-year basis, not necessarily just even on a year-to-year basis. And yet I was like very pleasantly surprised to see how well you and the team had held up for your clients. And so I guess I'm curious how you would characterize the experience. Like the first thing I asked you when you stepped in the studio was, hey, how's it been going? Uh, but how you would characterize the experience and also the differences, like if you could contrast 2023 versus this time a year ago, so. I think it's probably true that for the last few years, probably going back 2018 and potentially even before, that a lot of the market has been driven by macro factors. So, you know, we obviously had COVID come up and throw a wrench into everybody's plans. We then had free money being handed out, falling interest rates and, you know, companies and asset prices just getting bid up based on hopes and dreams and free money. I think more recently, certainly the back half of 2022, we've started to see um, perhaps some concern about broader markets. You know, you've got the war in Europe, you've got continuing logistical issues, and of course you've got inflation kicking in. And, and those have crushed a lot of those aforementioned hopes and brought them down to reality. For a value investor, 
I think the current market that we're in is actually quite attractive. I mean, the, the challenge for us in exuberant markets is that asset prices get bid up beyond what we'd be prepared to pay for them. And so there's not a lot for us to do. Um, when you start to see some uncertainty in the market, and we don't have an issue with uncertainty, but we really like to see uncertainty. You've got known knowns and you've got unknown unknowns. So, you know, before COVID, no one could have thought about COVID, but now the COVID's there, people can still be nervous about it. But at the point that you understand where it's going and how it's going to play out, you can take advantage of people still behaving emotionally when in fact there are fundamental reasons why companies A, B, and C might do quite well. So high interest rates, low asset prices is actually a great place for a value investor to be, especially if they've got capital to allocate. Um, I think looking forwards, we've identified pockets of opportunities and we've actually been quite active in the market in the last six to 12 months, far more than we have been over the journey, I think, in, in any similar time period. I think in the next year, year and a half during 2023, 2024, we're probably going to start seeing fundamentals being better appreciated by the markets. Again, as we become accustomed to, or as we get over those logistical bottlenecks and become accustomed to, or hopefully the war ends in Europe and, you know, as, as, as inflation either starts to come down or we get used to the new normal. Would you say that companies, so you've been active, would you say, just as like a broad strokes question, that the more rocks that you're turning over now, they seem to be more favorably priced? That, yeah, yes. The answer is yes. That's not to say that we would necessarily invest in them because we're not looking to invest in the market. We're a concentrated portfolio. We're looking to invest in you know, the best couple of ideas that we might have in any given year. So I'm just trying to think, what, what have we done recently? You know, we bought some, some, you know, some, some auto retail. We bought some traditional media. I know that sounds awful and scary, well, for yeah. but we think there's value there. You're here on a podcast. <laughs> We've bought some gold holdings. I think we even bought some oil and gas related stuff. So, so I know that doesn't sound like a lot to mention four different things that we bought, but for us, yeah. that's, that's very active. That's very active. Look, in terms of market valuations, it's always obviously easier in hindsight to say, oh yeah, the markets are cheaper. Oh yeah, the markets are expensive. It's, that's obvious at this point. But I did note the other day, there's something called the Gotham Index. I think I've heard of it. Yeah, I can't remember if I've seen it. Exactly. So what they essentially try and do is they measure cheapness or valuation or, or value based on it's proprietary, so I'm not sure exactly what it is, but the, the guidelines are, it's essentially an assessment of their cash flows and their earnings against their enterprise value. And they look out two years to try and get a sense of, of what their earnings and cash flows are likely to look, at, look like. So it is, it is forecasting somewhat. And when I looked at it the other day, it suggested, and this is obviously global stocks, not specifically Australian stocks, um, it suggested that we are in the 90th percentile for cheapness compared to the last 30 years, meaning super cheap. Yeah, <laughs> super cheap at the moment. Now, now the risk with these sorts of things are probably twofold. Number one, did you get your valuations correct, right? And you, to, to the extent that you can put in the best efforts, you do the best job you can, and you know, hope that you're close. And the other challenge is that just because things are cheap doesn't mean they can't get cheaper. So, for value investors, we've seen that plenty of times. But in terms of what the opportunities look like at the moment, again, I'm not suggesting the whole market looks cheap, but there are certainly pockets where there are things that are super interesting to us. I like that. One of the things that I, I read and I was reading through some of your white papers in anticipation for today is like the the importance of management and a lot of people say this right but the way they implement it can maybe it's not always congruent with the way that they invest but I think with you it is and one of the things that I that like one of these banal words that, or phrases that gets tossed around is like find a CEO who is aligned like an aligned CEO but so often there are extraneous forces that would influence the CEO in a way that they can or cannot act in accordance with what you would say is like alignment. So for example, like a board of directors that 
kind of stifles the CEO's ambitions in certain respects and for whatever agency risk or reason, they don't allow it to happen. So it's not, in my opinion, it's not just good enough. It's, it's great, but it's not just good enough to find a CEO who owns shares in the company that they run, but also has the environment around them to pursue that. So I'm curious if you have similar views or differing views or how you go about ensuring that when you find a management team, they have the tools and the resources to do what they say they want to do. Yeah, that's actually a multifaceted question, I think. Yeah. I think the first question is when you're buying a stock, are you buying a business or are you buying the people? And I, I think normally the answer is a bit of both, but the best people tend to put in processes and people around them mm. who come on board with those processes. Um, that means that even in their absence, that, that the business will succeed and flourish. I think I think Peter Lynch said it, and I know you're a Peter Lynch fan, so if, if it was somebody else, you can call me out on it. But I think he said something along the lines of, try to buy businesses that even an idiot could run because eventually an idiot might run it. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's good yeah. advice. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's good advice. But to your point, you know, there's no perfect solution. And to an extent, we are relying on the people who are running those businesses. And there have been many a management book that, that talks about the pros and the benefits of a good manager. But yeah, we're looking to align our interests, not just the interests of the CEO, but the board as well. So I think, I think often there's a conflict between the interests of the board and the interests of the CEO, and that could create some friction and potentially poorer outcomes. Um, but we like to see really two things. Number one, we like to see the board and management all owning shares so that what's good for me as a shareholder is good for them. The share price goes up. That's great. And the other thing, and this is key, and sometimes we've seen some things that are totally out of whack, incentive plans. Incentive plans that focus on either earnings per share, return on equity, return on investment. Because if you pick other benchmarks that don't necessarily add value to shareholders, you can be sure that management will find a way to achieve those benchmarks. So we've seen things like revenue growth. So you can be sure that they will spend money, however expensive or cheap it might be, to grow revenue, whether it's going to add value to the underlying share price or not. If that's what they're being motivated to do, that's what they're going to do. You know, we even saw one time, years ago now, we invested in a, in, in a technology company and their management, I forget if it was a long-term incentive plans or the short-term incentive plans, their incentive plans in any case. One of the triggers was number of apps produced and marketed. No talk of prices, no talk of profitability, just get out product. So if you're motivating them to create product, they'll create product. If they, if they have to create product at the expense of shareholders, then often that's what they'll do. So there's no perfect solution. You want to own a business that even an idiot can run. At the same time, you want brilliant people running your business. Um, and you want to make sure to the extent that you can that they are as aligned as possible with you. Now, again, there, there's no perfect solution and there's, you know, there, there, are, there are spanners that can be thrown into, into every works. But ordinarily, if the people that are looking after your money are motivated by the same thing that you are, you tend to get good outcomes. Now, I think for us, keeping our finger on the pulse of these sorts of things is perhaps easier than it might be for someone who's doing investing part-time or those funds that have a broadly diversified portfolio because we can literally call up these guys. We've got, we tend to have relationships with the companies we invest in. Um, and so we can keep our finger on the pulse of what's going on. But certainly if we start to see their interests diverting from what our interests are, that would be a red flag for us. How many positions do you typically have in the portfolio? I think our marketing says eight to, to, to 20. We tend to be around about the dozen-ish core positions. Yeah, right. Okay. So that would give you, that conviction is obviously very important, which I'm sure we'll come to in a minute as well. But just sticking on the, the management piece for a minute, there was a really interesting anecdote or example that was used in the white paper, which I'll link to in the show notes if you are interested in reading through this. It's 
maybe a dozen pages or so. It's really worthwhile reading if you are wanting to understand how Michael and the team invest. But there was one in there, there's an example that you gave about how you might interview a management team or really just any stakeholder. It doesn't have to be the CEO or the management team. And it was an interviewing technique, which we used to use as research analysts when we were interviewing fund managers like this. Right? Okay. And I'm, I'm hoping you can ex- explain to the audience and to listeners some of the strategies that you use when you are speaking with management, how you go about getting the most from those interactions. It's clear to me that speaking to management adds benefit, but I don't think it's for the reason that most people imagine. You know, there's no secret cabal or, or, or luncheon where the top, the, the, the top CEOs meet with, you know, the in-group of fund managers and give them the insight mm. into the business that they, you know, that they want. You know, there, there's no director that's going to give me a investment advantage at the risk of, of going to jail himself. And to be frank, if I had that information and acted on it, I'd be going right with him into that same cell. So, you know, there's no special insight that we're going to get from these managers that, that isn't already available in mm. the public space. So again, I, I think we're really looking for two things from these conversations and to point, you know, to the extent that we can, we'll have two people go to, to, to these conversations that one person can ask the questions and one person can probably focus on, on their responses. So number one, we want to understand, or we want to be sure that we understand the messaging that they're giving us for their presentations correctly. We want to we want to ask them specific questions about their earnings, and about their directions and their plans and whatnot, and make sure that what they've told us in the public space and our understanding of that is the same so that we can then go and take that information and where we're able to test that in the real world. Go visit a company, go speak with management, go speak with staff, go speak with customers, whatever the case may be, whatever, whatever special little bit of you know, additional effort we can put in to get that information advantage, which is essentially what we're seeking to try and achieve. The other thing we're looking for is to gauge their passion and excitement or energy around the business. We've certainly gone to meetings before where the numbers all seem to stack up, but we were put off because it was clear to us that the CEO at the time was exhausted and frustrated. And while he didn't say anything specific, it was clear from his body language that he that he'd had enough, that, you know, something was up. So we're looking for that passion. We're looking for that excitement. And often it's quite handy, especially if there are several parties in the room, to watch the interaction between the different levels of management, the different roles. Because again, while it's hard to measure culture, it, it's, it's not always hard to identify when there's a toxic culture and toxic cultures tend to produce bad outcomes. So, mm. you know, we're there, we're looking to see that they're, you know, that we understand what they've been telling us. We're looking, that, we're, we're looking to see that the, the culture and the relationships and the excitement exists there. And what we found is that that people, not you know, not just boards of directors, but you know, even people in the stores, you know, key people around a business, are surprisingly willing to speak with you if number one, you express a passion and excitement about that business and some knowledge, and even more so if you've done some research on the industry before you go there. It's not just a one-way conversation. You can actually provide some feedback about you know the different things and the different nuances that you've picked up over the journey from from some of their competitors and some of their some of their customers or whatever the case may be. So you certainly get a second and third meeting much quicker and easier if you're adding value to these conversations. But in terms of really what we're looking for, we're not looking for any special insight. We're looking to confirm that we understand it correctly and to confirm that management are passionate, excited, confident, and working well together. I love that. I love that because um, sometimes you do need to just feed off that energy. I think there is the risk, of course, that you kind of come away with the messaging that they want to give you because some of these people are fantastic. They're charismatic and all of that sort of stuff. And I think as you were saying that, it just reminded me like when you check like at multiple levels of an organization. I remember speaking to someone that worked for LaVisa 
the ASX retailer. And she just said, it's an amazing place to work. You basically just have autonomy over the store and you can make decisions and you like, obviously management have oversight, but you can make decisions and you can grow and you can run the team and you really feel like you run the business. And when I heard that, I just thought to myself, well, at a scale of La Visa, you would have to have that culture because if you don't, then how can you roll out hundreds and hundreds of stores that are so, so profitable? So that, that's great. Uh, and just to double click on one of the things you said, which is that you typically take two people to a meeting. One person is taking notes, but they're also studying body language. They're also cross-checking things that the person who's asking the questions and holding the conversation may miss. And I think that's really important too, uh, because that I found that really valuable back in time when you just need someone to, when you walk out of the meeting to be like, did they say that? And yes. Yes. That's what they said. And they said it this way. Look, if I could get away with recording every conversation, I'd probably do that too. But uh, yeah. I suspect there'd be some uncomfortable conversations if I crack my phone out and press record. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So one of the things is you, you mentioned how concentrated the, the fund is and by the way, it's not just one fund if you're listening to this, but I'm, I'm focusing on the Collins Street Value Fund. There's a link in the, in the, uh, in the show notes, but you are very concentrated in the way you invest. You don't make many decisions. You focus on making very high quality decisions, which I, I have a lot of respect for. But with that, you know, with that, I guess that great right of concentration comes responsibility to monitor the risk, right, of the portfolio. So one of the things that creeps in, no matter how good our investment process and what we want to do, sometimes there are biases and, you know, the behavioral quirks of us as human beings uh, that kind of creep in. So I'm curious how you and the team more broadly manage these types of things and manage the emotional and behavioral side of investing. Don't think there's a way to invest without the influence of your life experiences. So there's always going to be the risk of your investments being framed by your experiences. But to the extent that you can protect yourself in your portfolio, you obviously have to. So I think, again, there are probably two key risks that we try to eliminate through our process. Number one is we want to eliminate groupthink. And number two is we want to avoid falling in love or in hate, which is sometimes the case, with any particular stock. So first things first, I think our process forces whoever um, instigates the idea to say it out loud. I think it's very easy to convince yourself of the merits of a particular idea if it's all going on in your head. But if you've got to convince somebody else, if I've got to bring a, a, an idea to you, Owen, and say, hey, Owen, what do you think about this particular idea? Well, first things first, I've got to convince myself in earnest. I've got to say it out loud to myself in earnest. And then I've got to come and bring it to you and convince you of it in earnest, which I, I suppose brings you to the second point, which is you've got to have what I called, I think last time I said, you've got to have, I said, you've got to have a, you've got to find yourself a, a teacher and a friend. So in this case, you've got to find yourself a friend, a compatriot, somebody who can hear you out, understand your perspective, but also is on a level similar to you so that, you, so that he, he's comfortable testing you and pushing you so that you can get to the best outcomes. Super important. What we do within the office is we create a bit of an adversarial interaction where anytime we have a conversation about a change from the status quo, so whether that's bringing in a new idea or taking out an, an existing position, we have a designated devil's advocate. I don't know if you've met Vass yet. No, I haven't. But we're quite good at playing devil's advocate with each other. <laughs> okay. So that could be some fun. And I think as well, th there's got to be a, a sense of humility as well. I, I think it's super important that you learn from mistakes and you take those lessons and apply them to your future decision making. And to that end, we actually do have a mistakes log or a lessons learned log with some wild and wonderful um, lessons <laughs> learned within there. Yeah, I'm sure we do. Do you track the performance of that log? In terms of what the stocks did after we sold? Yeah. No, because it's it's not important what the share price does afterwards. I mean, investors might say different. 
But as far as we're concerned, once we've sold it, the decision's been made. And if we had the same facts at hand again, we'd make the same decision again, irrespective yeah, of what the share price does later. I mean, 2020, 2021-ish, when we decided to finally sell uranium, we'd held it since 2017. It, you know, it had been, it had done literally nothing for three and a half years. And then in six months, it went up fivefold. So we sat down and we did an assessment of what we thought these things were worth. And there were a whole bunch of companies, but we basically used Paladin as the proxy. They're the biggest, they're the, you know, the most likely to come to production quickly. And so we did an assessment and we said on the basis that uranium prices might get to $70 as, a, as an average of the next 10 years, this is despite the fact that it was 30, 35 bucks at the time, we think it's worth 55 cents. So when it got to 55 cents, we sold it. Five days later, it was 75 cents. A week and a half later, it was a dollar. <laughs> so, you know, people say, oh, Michael, you know, you could have held on, you could have doubled your money again. And yeah, that may be true. But given the circumstances and given the information we had at hand, if we were in the same position, we'd do the same thing again. Because if the next guy wants to speculate on, on you know, some, some blue sky outcome, then great and good luck to them. Um, but I suppose beyond honing in on the lessons learned so that we can apply those lessons into the future, I don't care what the share prices did afterwards. Yeah. yeah. And, and look, some, some of those lessons are probably pretty standard and some of those lessons are perhaps a little bit out of the box. But uh, yeah, learn your lessons. And then I think lastly, especially in a small team like we have, you're stuck within your four walls. It is easy to create an echo chamber. And so I think it's almost as important as everything else that I've just said is get out of the office. Go meet people. And this might be super controversial, but meet people with different experiences and different opinions to what you've got. Because even though that might make you uncomfortable because everyone likes to surround themselves with people who share their group's think, it's a toxic way to go through life. And it's certainly not going to get you the best outcomes in life or in investing. So um, yeah, I suppose those are my couple of points. And again, I'm not saying it's perfect, but you've got to be actively aware of what the risks are and take active action to try and protect yourself from those risks. Mm. One of the things that I love about smaller teams is that the group think is there, but it's n- it can be broken. I find that I, some people probably won't like that I say this, but like uh, I think the more people that come into a team, uh, as an investment team, you have to be incredibly careful because there, I feel like there is decay. There's like marginal, not benefit, but marginal, I guess, degradation in the quality, unless you're very particular about how you hire, about what unites people being that philosophy. And um, I guess just being really mindful about who comes into that ecosystem and at what time of the company's growth. It's like any team, but also I think it's particularly prevalent with investing where you can get a lot done. You can add a lot of leverage to your business without adding a lot of people. I think that's probably the, the key takeaway there. So we've got two more questions and these are a bit of fun. The second last one for you, Michael, is basically, can you give us some companies as examples? You've already given us a few, but some companies as examples that might illustrate the process that you went through to find them. I feel like you've got this wonderful pond of say 12 fish and I'm asking you to show us one and you've only got so few. So if you only have one of them that's available that you can share with us, I would love that. Or even just talk generally about the process and what went into the decision. Look, we obviously have a watch list that Mm. we maintain and update based on earnings, but we tend to be looking in places and in sectors and at companies that at the time other other people might refer to as, as my daughter would say, yuck, you know, they make them feel uncomfortable. There's something about it that turns them off. I'm trying to think, what's a good example? I mean, there are plenty of good examples. 
One that's mostly played out, um, not completely played out, but played out quite well over the last couple of years is probably MMA Offshore. Oh, yeah. yeah. I don't know if you know the business, but essentially, familiar. you know the business? Yeah. Well, for, the, for our listeners, essentially what they do is they provide all the sorts of services that you might need to construct, maintain, disassemble, move offshore oil rigs is their primary business. And we were first introduced to the business probably a couple of years ago. Essentially, the sector, oil and gas sector has been coming, has experienced a decade-long massive underinvestment in the space and, 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 and the companies that, that service it and deal with it have, have seen their share prices accordingly significantly below where they were back in the early, you know, the 2013, 13s or thereabouts. And so we found this business that was apparently trading at 30% of NTA and they were selling their non-core assets. And surprisingly to us, they were selling them for NTA or above, which is unique because ordinarily when a company says this machine is worth a million dollars, when they then go and sell it six months later, you'll note in the, in, in deep, deep in the annual report, they got 250K or 300K for it. So, so for a company to genuinely achieve the NTA that they said it was worth, um, was very interesting to us. And so we tried to do some research and there's, there's not a lot of companies within the Australian space to compare it to. And so we found ourselves looking overseas at mining services companies. We looked at a lot of the drillers actually out in the States, but also around, around the whole world. And what we discovered was that during trough periods, it's not unusual for these sorts of businesses to trade at sometimes even less than 30% of their genuine NTA. And I suppose that makes sense. I suppose if you think the world is over for this particular sector, well then the assessment of value is based on, well, what can I sell this stuff for in a fire sale? Um, but what we also discovered was that during peak periods, these companies can trade up to and sometimes in advance of two times NTA, I suppose because during those periods, people aren't concerned about what you can sell the stuff for and are ascribing value based on their earnings. So it makes sense to us. So we have to get comfortable and, and, and work out, well, first questions first, is the oil and gas, is the oil and gas space finished? which seemed to be the general, you know, the general perception of investors and, 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 you know, the culture out there. And we did some research and, you know, I thought, well, you know, popularity of electric vehicles is going to see the, the amount of oil being consumed radically drop off a cliff. And, you know, we're not doing some research expecting to discover that 30, 40% of oil consumption goes to passenger vehicles, only to discover that it's probably less than 15%, only to discover that all of the experts who actually have their finger on the pulse of the industry um, are saying that it's going to be demand growth well into the 2030s and possibly longer. And so despite the fact that you've got demand growth, you've got a massive underinvestment, a chronic underinvestment in the sector. And so supply has come right off. So we're looking for a couple of things. Number one, we're looking for the company's machines and boats to be put into service because, you know, when, when these industries go into trough, a lot of these things, a lot of these things get mothballed. And if you're investing when things are being mothballed, you take the risk that they might be mothballed for longer or that the industry might continue to go down for a long time. We didn't want to take that risk. We wanted to see that there was an uptick in usage, right? So during, during bad times, you know, it gets down to 40, 50, 60%. Um, we wanted to see it up to 80, 90%, which would be really great times. Um, and we also wanted to see, what do they call it, rental costs for these, these ships or these rigs or whatever the case may be, start to improve. Um, because during trough periods, these companies chatter they can get away with because they just need to keep the lights on. Whereas when things start to go well, they can charge significantly more. So we waited to start see, we waited until we started to see that first movement. We saw, we saw rates of use go from 60 to about 90%. Certainly that's the case in the, um, in the offshore oil rig space in the United States, which we use as a proxy. Um, and we started to see the rental for these 
breaks and for the access and, and all the supplementary services basically double. You know, just for example, one of these floating rigs out in the middle of the ocean cost the oil company or used to cost the oil company somewhere to the tune of $200,000 per day to have access to it. Over about nine months, we saw that go to about $400,000 US dollars per day. So once we saw those moves start to happen, we were comfortable to invest in the business. Again, we were fairly confident that the sector was going to recover because we thought that the way people felt about the industry was not really in line with the fundamentals of the industry. And I'm not saying we're looking to time things per se, but we're looking to start to see the, the genuine fruits of those green shoots that everyone always talks about. And so once we uncovered that, we were happy to invest in MMA Offshore at around about 30% of its NTA. At the time, it was about 30, 35 cents. We then had the war in Europe and a, recognize, a recognization that, that the transition from where we are to where we want to be in terms of renewables is probably going to take longer than people expect. Fast forward two years and MMA Offshore is now sitting at around about $1, $1.25. So that's, mm, that's certainly a, see that. not quite a happy ending story because we think there's still more to, more, more to be said and more to be had. Um, but again, it's, it's a good example of looking in places where people are uncomfortable to look and finding value where people are uncomfortable to find it. Again, it was there for anybody who's prepared to do the research and have a, have a good look. But, you know, going to, a, going to a house party or going to a dinner party and talking about your investment in fossil fuels in 2020, 2021 was probably a pretty uncomfortable conversation to have. Yeah. Yeah. Well, even before at the top of the show, you mentioned traditional media and uh, that raised my eyebrow too. So uh, I'm sure there are plenty of these that you can think of. And uh, well, if, if you want, we could talk briefly about Seven West Media. Okay, sure. Let's I'm talk about that. To. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, absolutely. I'm so, fascinated by this. So, I was meeting with some clients the other day and I mentioned that, you know, we're looking to invest in these sorts of companies and Seven West was one of the ones we looked at. And uh, the fellow said, oh, Michael, said, Michael, if we lived back in the day, you'd be buying saddle makers at the invent of, of the automobile. And I said, look, I understand why you feel that way, but that's not where Seven West is today, right? Seven West is the saddle maker who pivoted to auto upholstery. That's where they are. So I think when people think of Seven West and traditional media, they think of newspapers and, quote unquote, a dying free-to-air business. And that's fair because until fairly recently, that's really been where they were. I mean, I'm not convinced that free-to-air is dying. You see the money in football. You see the money in cricket. You see the money they've put into programming. So there's a tremendous amount of money being had, a tremendous amount of money being invested, and there is certainly opportunity there. But I think the main thing for Seven, specifically Seven, is their pivot into video-on-demand, online subscription. So they've got about 13 million subscribers to their online platform, which is pretty impressive. I mean, I think that would make Netflix jealous. Their revenues from that new part of their business has gone from about 2% four years ago to about 40% today and is over $140 million a year. Yeah. Um, Seven specifically has reached to over 90% of the Australian market. They're the number one advertiser and they represent about 40% of the advertising market um, on TV and papers. So it's a huge business and they've recognized their opportunities because of the view of the market to these sorts of things. And they, you know, in the last little while they went and they bought Prime Media, which is, you know, when we went to visit the country, Prime Media was the country version of Channel 7. Um, And they also recently bought the Western newspaper, which gets to, I think, 83% of WA readers. So they've got some fabulous reach. But what I'd really like is that their debt is exceptionally low. Their debt to EBITDA is about 0.7, which means they could pay off all of the debt within nine months from their earnings if they wanted to. Their price to earnings, based on their most recent updates, was about five times for the half year and about three and a half times, four times for full year. And get this, they're buying back 10% of their stock 
I believe, on market. So, so it's a business that is, I think, grossly misunderstood. It's a, it's a business with management who it seems to me recognize the value of capital management and having identified that their own business is the cheapest business, are happy to go and buy their own stock. And that's the sort of thing that we like to see. Again, I understand why people feel uncomfortable talking about these sorts of things, but that's why the opportunity exists there. So just to confirm, it's trading, I think, like single digit price earnings ratio. It's buying back stock and it's got a little business inside of it that is growing. Well, not even a little business. It's 40% of revenues now. Oh yeah, it's big. Yeah. So they said, they said three months ago, they came up with a presentation saying they experienced the best earnings that they'd experienced in 11 years. So it doesn't sound like a dying business to me, but I understand that people feel like it's a dying business. Mm. Fascinating. So this is going to go straight on the watch list of many people listening to this. SWM is the ticker symbol. So check that on your watch list. Let, let's be clear. This is not financial advice. Do no, you no, research? No. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, no, no. This is just going on the watch list. As an interesting case study. So I think we are getting to the point where you can see how Michael invests and where he's looking to turn over rocks because turning those rocks over in the those places maybe is more fruitful overall. The strike rate is higher because no one else is there. True, but stocks can stay unpopular for longer than you'd like. Yeah, absolutely. Just, just because I've identified it's cheap doesn't mean it becomes expensive. No, the that's day. the thing, right? Like a cheap stock can always get cheaper. That's it. Right, yeah. So, no, I think that's just a, a really interesting illustration of the business. So, uh, and the kind of, the things that you look for. Also with MMA, to be honest, that's a business that I've always been too scared to get into the weeds of. So you definitely went there when I didn't. But I, I, I figure one final question will do us justice here on the show, which is what's one thing that you believe about finance or investing or even business that few people would agree with you on? And there have been quite a few things. Look, certainly being a proponent of the idea of a concentrated portfolio would be unpopular at university and in all of the textbooks that have probably ever been written about investing. But I think maybe the most, like my, my pet peeve, the thing that bugs me the most, I think, is, is the perception out there that there is a perfect way or a perfect model that you can build your portfolio on. And, and it seems to me that when you read the texts, when you speak to advisors, there's a suggestion that everybody should be investing in the same sort of way, in the same sort of businesses. And that really always has just really bothered me. I think that everybody needs to understand their point in life and their risk profile. And there should be meaningful differences in your portfolio, meaningful differences in your portfolio, depending on where you lie. Um, and I think it's especially prevalent in young people's portfolios. You know, I think most young people are getting their investment advice from the same people who are giving investment advice to their dads and granddads and they're getting the same advice as their dads and granddads are getting. And I understand why that's the case because suggesting something conservative and safe um, is not going to get anybody fired. But, but young people are never as poor. So young people are as poor now as they're ever going to be. They're never going to make less money than they are today. And so their own internal rate of inflation is significant. So to my mind, if that's the case, they need to ask themselves a serious question about whether or not they should be investing or not. And if they are investing, they should be looking for the sorts of ideas that can keep up with their internal rate of inflation, such that the value of that dollar today will at least match that when they're, you know, match that change from when they're 20 to when they're 30 or when they're 40. Now, again, that brings us to the question whether young people should be investing at all. And I would say there is a case to be made. They should invest, even if it's just to get into the habit of good habits. But I think it's a real question. 
I think it's a real question. And if you can't find an investment that's likely to be able to keep up with your earnings growth and your internal rate of inflation, then really fundamentally, it's a question as to whether or not you should be investing at all. Again, apart from good habits, which is important. So yeah, that's my pet peeve. I think young people should be investing more assertively, maybe more concentrated, maybe maybe more aggressively. I don't know what it's supposed to look like and everybody has to answer that question for themselves. But to me, for a kid to get essentially the same packet of stocks to pick from as someone's pitching to their father or grandfather is just absurd. I love that. Go out and be your own kind of field guide and explore the world. There's a lot to learn. Get out there, do scuttlebutt, find things that other people aren't looking at and you can make fantastic returns that way. Mm, That's great. Well, Michael, we've covered a lot. There'll be full links in the show notes to everything that you do, um, as well as the white paper that I referenced a few times. It's a good read. So I do really appreciate you taking the time to walk a couple blocks over here and join me in the studio. Oh, look, it was it was all uphill, but thankfully it's downhill on the way home, so I should be fine. <laughs> Great, mate. Well, thanks again. No worries. Thanks for having me on. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest... Now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.